And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hodnell. This is the Ken Hodnell Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West, the most haunted city in the country, and one of the most corrupt. Well, today's January 25th, 25th day of the new year. 340 days remaining to the year is over with. In 41, after night of negotiation, Claudius is accepted as Roman Emperor. 1348, a strong earthquake strikes the South Alpine region of Friuli in modern Italy, causing considerable damage to buildings as far away as Rome. 1494, Alfonso II becomes King of Naples. 1515, coronation of Francis I of France takes place at Rheims Cathedral. Well, the new monarch is anointed with the oil of Clovis and girt with the sword of Charlemagne. 1533, Henry VIII of England secretly marries his second wife, Anne Boleyn. 1573, Battle of Mikotogahara in Japan. Uh, Takeda Shingen defeats uh, Tokugawa Yishu. 1575, Luanda, the capital of Angola, is founded by the Portuguese navigator Paulo Dias de Novaes. I'm sorry, Novaes. 1585, Walter Raleigh is knighted shortly after renaming North America's region of Virginia in honor of Elizabeth I, sometimes referred to as the Virgin Queen. 1755, Moscow University is established on Tatiana Day. 1765, Port Egmont, the first British settlement in the Falkland Islands near the southern tip of South America, is founded. The uh, 1787, Shays Rebellion. The largest confrontation took place outside the Springfield Armour, resulting in the killing of four rebels and the wounding of 20. The, uh, let's see, <clears throat> 1881, Thomas Edison and Alexander Graham Bell formed the Oriental Telephone Company. 1890, Nellie Bly completes her around-the-world journey in 72 days. 1917, sinking of the Laurentic after hitting two German mines off the coast of Northern Ireland took place on this date. 1918, the Ukrainian People's uh, Republic declares independence from Soviet Russia. Even a hundred years ago, Ukraine wasn't happy with Russia. 1918, the Finnish Defense Force, the White Guards, are established as the official army of independent Finland, and Baron Mannerheim is appointed commander-in-chief. 1932, the 2nd Sino-Japanese War. Chinese National Revolutionary Army begins the defense of Harbin. 1937, one of the longest-running soap operas, The Guiding Light, debuted on NBC from Chicago. 1952, it moved to CBS Television, where it remained until 2009. My mother used to love that show. 1942, on this date, Thailand declares a war on the U.S. and the U.K. 1945 saw the Battle of the Bulge end on this date. 
1946, United Mine Workers rejoined the American Federation of Labor. In 1960, the National Association of Broadcasters reacts to the payola scandal by threatening fines for any disc jockey who accepts money for playing particular records. Uh, let's see, 1969, Brazilian Army Captain Carlos Lamarca deserts in order to fight against the military dictatorship. Took with him 10 machine guns and 63 rifles. We'll never remember to take ammunition. In 1993, five people are shot outside the CIA headquarters in Langley. Two are killed and three are wounded. Uh, let's see. 2015, a clash in uh, Namasapano, Maguindano in the Philippines kills 44 members of Special Action Force and at least 18 from the Moro Islamic Liberation Front and five from the Bangsamoro Islamic Freedom Fighters. And in 2019, a mining company's dam collapses in Brumadinho, Brazil, a southeastern city, killing at least seven and leaving 200 missing. You know, this... I've been proud of my military service. I'm a 100% disabled veteran. But I have unfortunately discovered that to... A lot of contractors and attorneys in this town especially. Disabled veterans are a source of income. They do half-ass work to contractors, get paid every nickel they can squeeze, and then they sue for more. And the attorneys have an in with the judges because it's free money, don't you know? As one of the contractors said to me, it's free money. It's not yours. It belongs to the government. They give it to you. You give it to us. Everybody's happy. And the VA, what does it say? Nothing. They keep their head down. And they keep shoveling them jobs out to their friends. That's a hell of a thing to do to a disabled veteran. Now, yesterday's show, we were talking about um, Sitchin's uh, translations of the Sumerian tablets. And uh, both Enki and Enlil, the two half-brothers who were sons of the king, were notable and had sons who were notable in Nephilim history. Enki's son was Marduk, Nergal, Gibel, Nanagal, and Dumuzi. Enlil's sons were the Nurturer, Sin, and Ishkar, or Adad. <clears throat> the, um, however, Sitchin concentrated his work on a few of them. I think his firstborn son was Marduk, who was uh, egotistical, I guess is the best way to say it. Made numerous decisions that caused all sorts of trials and tribulations both of his family and for himself before the flood he told his um, mother he wasn't happy at not being not having a wife and children and he'd taken a liking to the earthling daughter of a high priest and with his parents permission he married her and they produced a son 
Imzag, which means lofty void. And although he was actually a demigod, he wasn't one of the gods, and he wasn't a human. He was a demigod. Somehow this offspring, if you will, was included in the list of Sumerians uh, called God. In Sitchin's words, he was the first demigod who was considered an actual god. And later, after a military feat in which he was successful, he was given the name Nabu. Now, it's important to remember that Enlil had made it clear as the time before the flood that intermarriage of gods with earthlings was just not acceptable. In fact, he thought it was morally reprehensible. And Marduk's uh, intermarriage certainly must have contributed to Enlil's angers because by forging this union as a member of the royal family, he set a precedent that would serve as a bad example for other Anunnaki. Now, it's interesting to note that Inki actually approved of this relationship, that actually it may also have contributed to the animosity between the two half-brothers. Now, Marduk, Marduk uh, rose in prominence in Egypt, where Sitchin uh, surmises he was actually the Egyptian sun god, Ra. Egypt was Inki's domain, so Marduk's power there was quite in, uh, immense, which is understandable. But this wasn't enough for Marduk. Information Sitchin gathered points to his almost uncontrollable ambition to gain control over Earth itself. If Enki, his father, hadn't lost his preeminent place as Earth leader, Marduk would have inherited that role legally. And his behavior made it clear he believed he still was entitled to that birthright. Now, his infamy as a troublemaker uh, also stems from several events, but the most prominent one records the accusation against him that he committed a murder. He was found to be either closely associated with or the perpetrator of the murder of Damuzi, Ishtar's husband and Enki's youngest son. And Anna, or Ishtar, accused Marduk of this crime and wanted him executed. But Anu, the king, intervened and suggested instead Marduk be tried in the courts. Well, Ishtar didn't wait for a legal judgment. She went after Marduk herself, chased him deep into the Great Pyramid, and yelled her threats. Marduk didn't respond, and a cylinder seal depicts Inanna's confrontation showing her on her familiar half-naked pose standing near the pyramids of Giza. And she was ready to use her own weapons to uh, attack him, but Anu interceded again, telling her if she fired into the pyramid, Marduk might use the weapon uh, built in that structure to defend himself. And this particular instance substantiated Sitchin's uh, contention that the Great Pyramid was actually a weapon. And subsequent research he performed showed that this was actually the case. Now, a long-standing argument of the Egyptians is that they built the Great Pyramid in historic times. It was built as a pharaoh's tomb. The Sumerian tablet records gave Sitchin the ammunition to dispute those claims. But the Egyptians do not accept the ancient evidence and, in fact, gave Sitchin a hard time when he wanted to visit that country. 
They don't even want to hear any information that would contradict their belief. The Great Pyramid was built by Egyptians for Egyptian burial purposes. Now, the ancient record, that's a side note, of the pyramid as a weapon. It's confirmed by a modern scientific finding that supports the idea the Great Pyramid was a paleo-ancient weapon. Described in scientific language as a conjugate mirror and howitzer or coupled harmonic oscillator in the search for the modern, uh, of the, in the research of the modern uh, physicist Joseph Farrell. The idea was discussed in great detail in his book, Giza Death Star. It makes fascinating reading. Now, with her resolve to see Marduk dead, Ishtar made sure he was imprisoned by sealing him inside the pyramid with no way to escape. Her intent was to deprive him of food and water and kill him by passive means. And according to Sitchin, the uh, Sumerian tablet described this event and uh, was found in numerous fragments. But because of the work of the Sumerian scholar Samuel Kramer, um, her words are now uh, clearly seen. In, uh, in a great envelope that is sealed with no offer to no one to offer him nourishment alone to suffer the potable water source is to be cut off if that doesn't make it clear the intent was to starve him out I don't know what does this is before Marduk starved to death Anunnaki experts entered the pyramid and freed him in the words that Sitchin quoted from the ancient text to explain what the rescuers did um using special tools that apparently could bore through limestone and come from a tablet he really doesn't identify, but he writes that uh, the rescues, the rescuers uh, hollowed into its insides. Sitchin offers uh, uh, an historically extraordinary explanation, telling us that only the Anunnaki who had the pyramids planned in hand could have known the interior design and how to bore through built-in obstructions to get to the Grand Gallery where Marduk was imprisoned. So Sitchin is actually telling us who built the Great Pyramid. And his knowledge of the pyramid's interior structures is cited as impressive and authentic by no less a modern author than Joseph Farrell, a scholar who published a thorough study of the ancient pyramid in the first decade of the 21st century. Now he was freed and stood on trial. Marduk brought out evidence in the trial that was able to raise sufficient doubt as to whether Dumuzi died by accident or by his hand. Although he was exonerated, he was actually forced into exile. And uh, he lived in seclusion in Egypt under the name Amen, the Hidden One. When he emerged from banishment, he petitioned to return to Sumer, and when he finally did return, he took control of the city of Babylon by trickery proclaiming himself the supreme leader of Babylon and therefore of Sumer. He also boasted he'd capture and control the Anunnaki spaceport in the central Sinai. And this, of course, was seen as a serious threat against all the Nephilim and the Anunnaki. The spaceport located there after the flood was the strategic lifeline between Nibiru and the Earth. Now, Marduk's Braggadocio was seen by Enki's other son, Nurgle, and and little son, Ninurta, is a very serious threat that had to be stopped at all costs. 
After Nurgle pleaded unsuccessfully with his father, Enki to take action to stop Marduk, these two, Nephilim, offspring, joined forces and devised a plan that got the approval of Anu and the Nephilim Council. And their plan to stop Marduk and his son, Nabu, from gaining access to the sacred spaceport site was of momental importance to Earth's history because it involved the use of Anunnaki nuclear weapons. And there's a lot of ancient writings that make it clear that there were nuclear weapons uh, in use on this planet long before World War II. So Nurgle and Ninurta unreleased these ultimate weapons. Uh, nuclear devices had previously been brought in from Nibiru that had been stored underground somewhere in southern Africa. Carefully targeted detonations uh, sites were identified, designed to stay within approved uh, target sites in Sinai. Both the spaceport and its control center were totally destroyed. Uh, these actions uh, created a fallout cloud that caused the, the demise of Sumer. Every living thing inside the blast zone and the path of the nuclear cloud was extinguished. The year of this holocaust was said to be 2024 B.C. Now, if you study Sitchin's writings carefully, you get quite a different story than what has um, been put forth in our history. But turning from this near destruction of the, the human race, how did humans come to live on Earth in the first place? This question, of course, has always been challenging, wrapped as it is in debate. It's also as, as exciting a question as it is captivating. This question's wording presumes that a human species lived elsewhere in the universe and somebody or something brought humanoid life here. Well, is that possible? Or are there other explanations to be found for human existence on this planet? And while Sitchin doesn't entertain this question in just the way I just ask it, research into ancient clay tablets and writings does tell us uh, all the Sumerian texts assert that the gods created man. Now, was that a ethereal creation or was that a physical creation? The biblical evidence indicates that man was not a god, nor was he created in the heavens. It's clear that while humans lacked the godly characteristics of knowing and longevity, they were, in all other respects, created in the image and likeness of their creators. And the use of both terms in the text were meant to leave no doubt that man was similar to the gods, physically and emotionally, externally and internally. But they didn't have the the all-knowing ability or the longevity demonstrated by the um, Nephilim and the Anunnaki. Sitchin goes on to wonder how could a new creature possibly... Hmm. That's interesting. Try that one more time. How could a new creature possibly be a virtual, physical, mental, and emotional replica of the Nephilim? How was man created? Obviously, he penetrated the mysteries and 
He wasn't just a recorder of facts, as Pavlov suggested. We. Sitchin was a determined researcher who followed the facts. When his study of the ancient Sumerian tablets led him to the topic of the creation of humans, Undoubtedly, knowing the origins of human species that now populates planet Earth is important. The topic has long been studied by physical anthropologists, genetic scientists, and others curious about this issue. And the discussion of the origin of the human species has prompted a lot of heated discussions. Essentially, this discussion uh, asks, did the God of the Bible create humans from some substance found on Earth? Or did the forces of nature work a progressive developmental change on a primitive creature who slowly underwent genetic change by a process called a mutation and natural selection, as was put forward by Charles Darwin? Now, while evolutionary scientists may believe that human genetic change has been occurring across the thousands of millennia of life on Earth, the evidence to lock down this explanation of how progress occurs in humans is almost non-existence. Would such slow changes lead to today's intelligent humans? Assuming we are intelligent. Yet if one looked for cognitive changes beginning with Stone Age man 600,000 uh, uh, years ago, it is doubtful that evolutionary change would provide unambiguous evidence that results in today's intellectually capable and creative humans. There just has not been sufficient time for the types of changes that differentiate primitive beings such as Neanderthal from the modern Cro-Magnon human species uh, to have occurred. Now, if Darwin's explanation is not realistic, what other source can be used to document the origin of modern humans? Remember, his theory of evolution is just a theory. It has never been proven. It only makes sense if there is the mysterious missing link that he talks about. Is it possible there's another answer to how modern intelligent humans came into existence? And as a result of Sitchin's research, he believes the answer to that is yes. According to him, there's both biblical and anthropological evidence to support a different explanation. And he followed his inclination to find answers to clues contained in the ancient clay tablet records and he was able to penetrate the tablet language to uncover evidence documenting that Homo sapiens developed by genetic manipulation carried on by the Nephilim. Now, he tells us the evidence clearly indicates that deliberate genetic modification explains the appearance of modern intellectual humans on Earth. He weighs in as a critic of the sweeping implications of the Darwinian explanation, and his message helps to see the flaws and the reasoning that points to a slow development tra developmental trajectory. Now, the tablet evidence indicates that Homo sapiens was a result of genetic manipulation by a scientific team from the space traveler group that came down to Earth and worked out the details of this design project some 300,000 years ago. And as has been mentioned earlier, we humans are here on Earth because the Nephilim needed our kind to rectify a labor shortage at their gold mines. And our kind is intelligent, willing workers. Whereas uh, some hold the view that every humans were created to worship their creator, Sitchin points out the term commonly translated as worship was in fact avad, or work. He amplifies the role of the first humans with the statement, ancient and biblical man did not worship his God, he worked for him. 
The leader of the space travelers, who at the time was Inky, made the following statement. I'll produce a lowly primitive. Man shall be his name. I'll create a primitive worker. He'll be charged with service of the gods. That thing I'd have their ease. Importantly, the two Nephilim scientists, Inkin and Hersog, didn't develop the human being out of nothing. Sitchin's words are the most profound statement we find in any of his books, and for lack of a better term, to serve as a beacon to guide our inquiry deeper into the topic. He makes it clear that the human origin debate is not an either-or issue, but actually comes from both explanations. He said, man is the product of evolution, but modern man, homo sapien, is the product of the gods. So about 300,000 years ago, the Nephilim took an ape-man, homo erectus, and implanted on him their own image and likeness. They modified him. They mutated him. In plain words, humans evolved and were created. A partially evolved being was used as the raw material, and genes from the Anunnaki were added to create the perfect being. Inkin and Herzog did this through their knowledge of genetic engineering. Well, according to what Sitchin discovered, when the leadership council of the Nephilim asked Inky, how will you create such a thing? Inky said that uh, this being already exists. All we have to do is put our mark on it. And then the text in great detail describes the process that the only modern parallel to that is that of bringing about uh, test tube babies. They mixed the genes of one of their young males with the eggs of an ape woman and after mixing the two, re-implanted fertilized eggs in the womb with some of their own females. Now, some biologists and other experts in fertility say that uh, this little detail do, does work. The fact that uh, this information came from an ancient text makes it even more mind-boggling that the fertilized eggs of the ape woman were re-implanted in the wombs of females who arrived on Earth. You might call them ancient female astronauts. And that's got great significance to the nature of this being... Uh, it was finally created. We're homo sapiens, not the hominid race that was on Earth uh, as a result of evolution. If you, want, want, if you want to look for a missing link, it's the arrival of the Nephilim on the Anunnaki. Now, in an effort to underscore this information about the availability of a humanoid who was an existing source of usable genes for the creation of humans... Sitchin noted during a celestial collision their planet uh, Nibiru had seeded the earth with its life. Therefore, this being was available to Inky, was really kin to the Nephilim, but in a less evolved form. Remember, Nibiru comes through our solar system every 3,600 years, and sometimes there are collisions. Gradual process of domestication through generations of breeding and selection uh, wouldn't do it. Um, the job needed to solve the labor problem. They needed a quick process that would permit mass production of these new workers. And the answer was to imprint the image of the gods on the, the beings that already existed. And that was done through gene manipulation. The existing hominid, the underdeveloped one, was at uh, an early stage of evolutionary improvement 
but held a degree of intelligence that would be raised when the image and likeness of the gods was inserted into its genetic structure. And because of this topic's important, uh, Sitchin devoted an entire chapter in his first book to the information that I've gone over very quickly. He titled it The Creation of Man. And in that uh, write-up, he said the, the atom of the Bible wasn't a genus homo, but the being uh, who was our ancestor, the first homo sapien. This modern man as we know him that the Nephilim created, Enki was informed that the gods had decided to form a, an Adam, and it was his task to find the means. And he said the creature whose name you utter did exist, and it did exist on this planet. Not many, but they were here. So this hominid walked about, drinking on hands and knees from streams and engaging in sexual acts with animals. In fact, one of those eight men was selected by a uh, Nephilim goddess, Dinsun, to be tamed so he could become a companion to her troublesome son, Gilgamesh. If you read the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is considered to be the world's oldest piece of literature, that story is related. Gilgamesh had been born of Ninsun's marital union with a human who was a priest in the ancient city of Eric. This allowed him to consider himself two-thirds a god by Anunnaki tradition. Enkidu, Gilgamesh's hairy, naked companion-to-be, was a kind of Stone Age man, according to Sitchin. And he was raised up from his animal-oriented ways to be a companion to Gilgamesh by being carefully taught by an Anunnaki woman of uh, of a lower order, to be sure. She was uh, said to be of service. Her lessons were fast focused on his sexual behaviors with women so that he'd be unacceptable to animals. In other words, he'd be considered civilized. Uh, the primitive worker, Homo sapiens, who was crafted about 300,000 years ago, jump-started the process. It continued and eventually resulted in the creation of humans, as we know them, in other words, us. Um, that earthlings were valuable to the Nephilim is confirmed by the story circulating uh, that took place when Enlil was banished from Sumer because of a moral transgression. He was forced to go to the site of the mining activity in southern Africa where he observed the willing workers in action. And he came to realize the value of these primitive workers and decided to take some of them back to Sumer to be the servants uh, of the Nephilim. Well, in making this particular decision, he he clashed with Inki and launched an arm attack against the land of the mines. An animosity between these two half-brothers had a long history, and this action on the Enlil's part was just one more episode. And he was successful in taking some of the workers to the settlements in Sumer. Soon after that, the willing and intelligent workers became extremely valuable to the Nephilim as scribes, record keepers. And because of the intelligence of those scribes, we have the artifacts that bring us the valuable and important bodies of explanation. Well, the next step in the creation of the primitive workers required the enlistment of a cadre of Anunnaki women to become birth mothers, seven to produce males and seven to produce females. And this step explains how Inky could get the workforce needed to solve the manpower problem within a reasonably short period of time. 
in a real sense, Earth's population would do well to be indebted to Enki, the chief scientist of the Nephilim, for the creative effort he used to bring our race into existence. There's evidence for this valuable explanation of how humankind uh, came into existence due to Sitch's willingness to probe deeply into the ancient clay tablets. Necessary aspect of these genetic science procedures now are in modern use and are valuable bodies of information to aid our understanding of ancient history. I find it fascinating that procedures we have long worked out today have their counterpart in the ancient records. Couldn't be a coincidence. Drawing on another ancient Sumerian source, one that's used by writers or editors of the Bible when the book of Genesis was adapted from Sumerian sources, is a statement that Sitchin calls literally astonishing. The Elohim, which was plural for literally gods, says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So this ancient source affirmed that we, the the earthlings, the humans, as the space travelers called our species, were made to look like those who created us. And tablet pictograms document all this. But what does it mean after our likeness? Well, as described in the tablets, in the clay, God and man shall be bound to a ninety to a unity brought together. So that to the end of days, the flesh and the soul, which in a God have ripened, that soul shall be blood kinship to be bound. And as a sign of life shall proclaim. Hmm. So that this wouldn't be forgotten, that the soul and the blood kinship be bound. So here is the in the image and after the likeness explanation. Enki did indeed make humans like the gods. Only two things we weren't endowed with. The longevity and the all-knowing uh, capability. Um, now, according to Sitchin, these are strong words, little understood by scholars. The text states the blo God's blood was mixed into the clay so as to bind God and man genetically to the end of days so that both flesh, the image, and soul, the likeness of the gods, could become imprinted on man in a kinship of blood that could never be severed. The um, clay was an analogy for the building block of the genetic process, unlike in the Bible where it's taken literally to mean a type of dirt, such as words, make it clear to us the complex understanding of what the mixing of the blood of a god into the clay means. He said the divine element required wasn't simply the dripping blood of a god, but something more basic and lasting. The god that was in, uh, elected had, uh, and the word he used was a term uh, the leading authority on the text translated as personality, but the ancient term is much more specific. It means that which houses that which binds the memory. In an Akkadian text, another version of this term can be found as itemu, translated as spirit. Implication that Sitchin drew on was something else was the 
repository of human individuality. And he surmises that the scientific process, and he used uh, refined the actual blood until the DNA used in the genetic imprint was like that of the gods. The altered DNA was all that remained. Now, if one believes the soul shapes behavior, and we humans behave in similar ways to the Nephilim gods, our creators who came down to live on earth hundreds of thousands of years ago. We're intelligent, for the most part, capable, inventive, uh, like the gods of olden times. When we probe even further, we learn something more interesting about the well-known biblical story of the Garden of Eden. The Bible tells us that two of these willing workers, a male and a female, were assigned by Enlil to a tree garden in the Eden. And they were told to take special care of two trees that were extremely valuable to the Nephilim and the Anunnaki. And Enlil gave the female, Eve, a specific order. He said, don't touch it. Don't eat it. The fruit of the tree of knowing. Well, these two earthlings, Adam and Eve, were put to work in the orchard without any awareness that their creator, Enki, had um, genetically programmed to be like the Nephilim that they too could procreate. Enlil knew they had that capability and decided to keep it from them. So the couple continued to work naked like all the other created workers. Well, for spite against Enlil or personal motivations, Enki decided to visit Eve in the garden and urged her to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge. That meant she had to deliberately disobey her master Enlil, who uh, had forbidden her to touch the fruit of that particular tree. Enki probably had decided the couple should be told that they had the same procreative capability as Anunnaki, so he took an action that, in essence, double-crossed his brother. He first informed Eve that she should eat of the forbidden fruit, and she then shared her newly acquired permission with Adam. She gave him some of the fruit to eat. What Enki did was merely urge the female to eat a fruit that unlikely was an aphrodisiac growing on a special tree, a tree of knowledge. When she consumed the fruit, she knew. Uh, physiologically, she knew. Told her partner, he ate, and his body responded as well. After eating, they both knew they had procreative capability. And this awareness also brought them to realize that they were naked. The gods were wearing clothes, but Adam and Eve had been roaming around, tending the garden naked, and didn't recognize that fact. But as soon as Enlil saw they had covered their nakedness, he knew what had happened. Um, and he knew that uh, somebody had uh, disobeyed. In essence, they enjoyed innocence and had enjoyed innocence, and after that, the quality of life was gone. Sexual awareness ensued. It's interesting and somewhat perplexing that the text refers to this knowledge as the knowledge of good and evil. You can only wonder at the motivations behind Inky's actions. Now, he was known to be one who had a generous proclivity for sexual encounters. Did he want the humans to share those particular feelings? Or did he just want to give his brother a hard time? Brothers tend to do that. Is it possible Inky wanted humans to increase in numbers? 
we don't have the evidence to confidently go confidently go beyond the information that uh, I've already laid out. Now, Enlil no doubt had political reasons for why humans should remain ignorant of their procreative capability. Enki, on the other hand, uh, maybe as an act of spitefulness against Enlil's command power, felt quite differently. We never know what motivations there were behind the actions of these two, but we, what we do know is that human sexual awareness made its debut for humans in that garden in the lands of the ancients that was called Eden. And this story is well known, but not with Inky playing a role. It was his symbol that was referred to in the, as the informant. Because Inky's symbol was the snake. Stemming from their plentiful supply in the swampy place where he built his first house. Uh, Inky's symbol was depicted graphically as two entwined snakes, similar to what you see on the, the medical caduceus. This symbol association with the way humans were given knowledge of their sexual capabilities is unfortunate, but maybe the original redactors um, preferred to assign a lonely snake rather than a Nephilim god to this uh, provocative role. I mean, human sexual procreative capability certainly owes a debt to Inky. He made sure he could the created humans were akin to the gods in every physiological as well as intellectual way. And if they were procreating, that was one less thing that the creating scientists had to do, create more humans. The consequence of Adam and Eve having acquired knowledge was they were thrown out of the garden. It was reported to have been afraid that these earthlings might also eat from the other special tree, the tree of life the one that would allow them to escape mortality. Eating that fruit would have given these humans both the primary differences setting the gods apart, uh, procreative ability and longevity. What he did to prevent this from occurring was to remove the couple from not only the temptation, but from the possibility of another revelation by Inky. And it's, uh, if you're familiar with the Bible, much of what was laid out there is very similar to what was reported in the Sumerian text. According to um, the text, Then did the deity Yahweh say, Behold, the Adam has become one of us, to know good and evil. And now might he not put forth his hand and partake of the tree of life and eat and live forever? So the deity Yahweh expelled Adam from the orchard of Eden. Now this event's come to be called the fall of mankind. Enlil didn't just transfer Adam and Eve to a, another less tempting location. He banished them from Eden completely. Sent them to the Abzu, the designation for the African region where the gold mining operation was located. And what followed was Enlil's announcement of peace punishment for sharing the sexual information with Adam. He told her after that that she'd used her procreative capability and Poor children, she would suffer painful childbirth. And no doubt the punishment was given to Eve because she was the one that convinced Adam to eat the forbidden fruit. Eve was given what some would say is the bane of womanhood, the labor pains of childbirth. According to the tablet, it said, And to the woman, he said, I'll greatly multiply thy suffering by thy pregnancy. 
In suffering shall thou bear our children, yet to thy mate shall they desire. And Adam named his wife Eve, for she was the mother of all who lived. Since you went on to say the acquisition of the sexual knowledge given for this primary purpose of procreation was a crucial step in the development of humans. But he also tells us, even lacking sexual knowing and the knowledge of the longevity of the gods, Adam was similar to the gods, both physically and emotionally, externally and internally. So what we wind up with is um, now one difference between humans and the gods, and that's the longevity. Now, there are writers who seem to believe that humans were created to be subservient, to be slaves. And even though the slave phenomenon was prevalent early in human history and has continued in some places around the globe even today, the view that humans were created to be slaves falls by the wayside as we look at the evidence. Now, slavery is the antithesis of the intelligent development. It's a reprehensible, maybe even demonic force that some humans use to exert ultimate power and control over other humans. And it's important to emphasize, according to the tablet evidence, that the humans were not created to be slaves. Um, there's too much evidence to counter this twisted and erroneous interpretation. The authors who espouse this negative interpretation of the creative evidence should reread the materials that's that decision is contrary to his explanations. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, to, to those who've set out uh, this mistaken idea that humans were created to be slaves and those who read and accept the interpretation, there are certain clarifications that need to be made at this point. It's the masters who dominate slaves. Slaves have no freedom of choice and are constrained by authority to do only the bidding of those authorities. And for the most part, slaves have no freedom of movement, as in the ability to explore territory. Even the hunter-gatherer humans use their free will to make decisions. In the Bible story of the events in the Garden of Eden, Eve used her free will to inform Adam. Hunter-gatherers engaged in creative thinking and development of tools and methods of successful hunting. And while these early humans used their freedom of, for personal benefit and the benefit of those who were close to them, others might have been constrained by survival circumstances to live with group-imposed constraints on their personal freedom in order to survive. Even that was a choice, not eventuality imposed by a master. The history of human creativity and movement decisions um, humans have undertaken throughout history are convincing evidence against the derogatory interpretation of the creative intention of the Nephilim as humans being slaves. As we see clear indications, humans are continuing to evolve, mostly through the creative technologies invented in the physical and cognitive sciences. The future holds even more promise of such developments as smart chips embedded into humans to enhance uh, physical capabilities and ideas that can control physical technology or in more widespread use. You know, when you, when you delve deeply into everything involved in the story and the, uh, laid out in the tablets about the creation of the human race, 
they were not looking for slaves. They were not looking for servants per se. They were looking for helpers. And that's why many of them that were brought back to um, Sumer from the uh, gold area uh, became scribes. They kept records. If they were servants or slaves, they wouldn't have access to the information they needed to record. So we're, we're, we're talking about um, what amounted to a junior race, so to speak. They brought them in like raising children. And that's what the gods did with the, with the humans they created. They raised them just as they did with children. Now, according to the ancient clay tablets, love was an emotion known from very ancient times. And love making is the most prominent behavior discussed in the Sitchin treatment of the tablets. It's an interpersonal emotion. It's a motivation that characterizes several of the examples he highlights in his discussions, but there are also examples of actions associated with lust. Sometimes what seems like lust initially is transformed into genuine love as a relationship, relationship develops. And that's one of the issues that came to light in regard to the sons of God saw the daughters of men and thought they were attractive and took them as wives. Was it lust or was it love? Probably in the beginning it was lust, but it ripened. Otherwise it wouldn't be a, a continuing human race. Well, on that note, it comes to the end of today's show. We're going to be talking more about these topics in the next few shows. So until tomorrow at this time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening.